Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Bullingdon Club Britain, how the values of one obscure Oxford University dining club came to permeate British politics. Bullingdon alumni include Boris Johnson, David Cameron and his Chancellor George Osborne. So to what extent have its beliefs and connections come to define Britain since 2010? We'll be hearing from Sam Bright, whose book, Bullingdon Club Britain, can be pre-ordered now from Byline Books and from publisher John Mitchinson who was a member of the Bullingdon Club. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details about how to subscribe over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Sam and to John. And Sam, your book is about modern politics. It's not a history of the Bullingdon Club. You say, much like the Bullingdon Club, Britain is suffering from the actions of an elite whose loyalty to self and the old school tie vastly outweighs its belief in the collective good. We'll explore that. But for people who don't know, what is the Bullingdon Club? Well, John may be able to give us the inside line, but in terms of the basics, the Bullingdon Club is an elitist society at the University of Oxford, and it's infamous for members of the club dressing up in its fineries, its regalia that it has donned for 150 years or more, and for going around and behaving rather badly, shall we say, at the various drinking establishments in and around Oxford. And I think if anyone's trying to picture it, they may have seen um, either adverts or seen the film itself, The Riot Club, which came out a few years ago, which was sort of a, a dramatisation and perhaps a, an exaggeration in some ways of the behaviour of these elites who tend to you know, be the heirs to fame and fortune. They're drawn from three exclusive private schools in England, Eton, Westminster and Harrow. And in the film, they commit various acts that the Bullingdon Club has been accused of over the years. But it has to be said that there is a a great degree of secrecy surrounding the group. Here to smash that secrecy for us is John (laughs) Mitchinson, the former member of the Bullingdon Club, who's going to break through the omerta of this (laughs) organisation. So, John, just tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a member of the Bullington Club when you were at Oxford. I think it was pure fluke, really. I had a slightly odd educational kind of background in that we emigrated to New Zealand when I was 12. So I did all my sort of secondary education in in New Zealand and went for a year to Oxford University. But I had had a kind of what English people would call a gap year but New Zealand is called OE, Overseas Experience, and had travelled. And as a kid, we grew up not far from Oxford, and I'd always been kind of mildly obsessed by particularly Merton College and the library and the fact that Tolkien was there. I was like a lot of kids born in the 60s and growing up in the early 70s. I was obsessed with Tolkien's work. So on that (laughs) fairly flimsy (laughs) 
kind of idea, really. I decided I wanted to go and study there. I wanted to study English there. So I applied from New Zealand. And of course, being Oxford, you, your year in Auckland University counts for nothing. You have to. So I had to sit Oxbridge out on my own. Anyway, I got in and I got offered a place at Merton. And I arrived, I suppose, slightly older and with a girlfriend. I didn't live in college. And I worked in a very, at that stage, a very cool restaurant in Oxford called Browns, which is very, very busy and was famous for kind of cocktails and famous for kind of lively, young, not university people enjoying themselves. So I was in between two worlds. And this is when 1983, I suppose, early 80s. So I got a reputation as being a good person for organising parties. And we had a small dining society in Merton called the Myrmidons, which in my second year I joined. And it was quite bohemian and we had run good parties. So I think at some point through the kind of the strange network in Oxford, my name had come up and nobody knew where I came from. I obviously hadn't been to any of the major public schools. It was like I was passing as somebody who I wasn't. And I got elected in the beginning of my penultimate term of my time. In fact, I think it was actually was my final term in Oxford. And as I describe in the forward to Sam's book, I was sort of bundled out and a group of people, most of whom I didn't know. One person I did know, who I think was the person who recommended me, came into my room, sprayed champagne everywhere, knocked over all the furniture, bundled me into the back of a car. And then we drove off and did the same thing with me kind of looking on in slightly bewilderment, really. Anyway, that's the initiation, which I sort of deposited back in my college rooms. And John, you were an outsider then. Complete outsider, yeah. As I say, I knew one other person in the club when I joined. Yeah, you hadn't gone to one of the so-called elite public schools from which the Bullingdon Club normally derives its membership. You were male, which is the other main qualification, but you had the Bullingdon Club. Uh, Just to give us an example... Of why good at parties, uh, I think that was honestly the only uh, Yeah, but just to give us an example of the kind of the disreputable behaviour that the Bullington Club engaged in, just tell us why you quit. Well, there was a bit of trashing of restaurants, which was, I thought, unnecessary, and that was always looked after by people leaving large sums of cash. And what, trashing um, of restaurants? Yeah, just sort of smashing plates and kind of knocking things over and setting fire to menus, kind of a very low level for most part, but kind of really immature vandalism. But there was just, I went thinking, maybe this is, you know, I'd read Evelyn War and there's a club called the Bollinger Club and I'd read P.G. Woodhouse. And I suppose there's part of me was thinking, maybe these people are interesting. You know, this was, remember, the early 80s. And uh, it was kind of curiosity that led me to join up. And I thought maybe it'd be an experience that would as I think I said in my piece, the the road to excess that leads to the Palace of Wisdom. But in fact, it was mostly just really, really unpleasant. And it culminated for me after a final event, which had been a dinner at Cliveden, the famous or infamous country house, which had been a perfectly all right. There wasn't much trashing there. And then what happened is I met one of the Bullington Club members, a person whose name I still can't remember. And I was in a Davies wine bar in Oxford with my fiance. We were getting married at the end of the my final term. And he'd come in and sort of sat with us and talked, sort of brayed a bit, and then called the waitress over, ordered the port, and then disappeared with the jug of port, and then called the waitress over again and said, there's something wrong with this port. And then I just remember she came back about five minutes later and said, you are the most disgusting people I've ever met. Get out of the restaurant and never come back. And I just looked at him and said, you know, we're having, <laughs> it was like sort of 7.30 on a sort of Wednesday evening. It wasn't like, and he just said, oh, yeah, I, I pissed in the jug. And my fiancé looked at me and just said, who 
on earth are these people? Crucially, she'd been away visiting her grandmother, who was very sick in New Zealand. So in this terrible kind of six-week period, I suppose part of me, I'm still talking about it 40 years later, in a sort of slight sense of PTSD, because at the time, I just thought that these are a bunch of dickheads. I'm really glad. I don't need to be in touch with any of them ever again. And then suddenly like a slow motion, really is like a slow motion car crash, the inexorable rise of Boris Johnson, who was in the club at the same time. And, you know, he was very much as you'd imagine Boris, except that I think people imagine Boris as the life and soul of the party. He kind of isn't really. He was certainly wasn't then. He would never have been a person caught red-handed smashing things or setting fire to things. Very, very weird, very strange dynamic and deeply dysfunctional. And of course, we now know deeply dangerous because... That kind of attitude, that sort of psychotic attitude, has been dominating our government for at least the last 14 years. And Sam, this is where your book comes in, because it isn't really about the Bullingdon Club. As I say, it's not a history, but it's about the values that the Bullingdon Club encapsulates, the self-entitlement, the lack of concern for for want of a better word, ordinary people, people like the waitress who discovers that a jug of yeah. has been filled full of urine. So how did you work that out, Sam, into a, an explanation of modern British politics? Well, it's pretty, pretty easy, really, just observing, like John says, past 13, 14 years. I mean, just John recalling that, the petty vandalism conducted at these restaurants just immediately makes you think, well, that's what's been happening in modern Britain. That's what they've done to the country mm. through austerity. You know, the restaurant is the country and they've stripped it for parts in order to bolster their own egos, have a bit of a laugh. You know, chuck, I mean, levelling up is the process of them chucking five or ten pound notes on the table after they've set fire to the place. It's just a bit ludicrous. I mean, we've talked a lot, Adrian, on this podcast about the procurement during the pandemic, you know, mass purchasing of PPE and the likes for billions and billions of pounds. And the fact that, you know, more than three billion quid's worth of contracts have ended up in the laps of conservative mates and donors. And it just makes you think, of course, this is actually how modern British politics still works. It still relies on who you know, not what you know. Lots of people will have seen this brilliant, led by donkeys, sting, where Kwasi Kwarteng and Matt Hancock are trying to get 10,000 a day contracts on behalf of a fake firm that led by donkeys has set up. And they've done no due diligence whatsoever. These are the people at the top of government who have done no due diligence on what this company is that wants to offer them serious sums of money. And those are the people who are in charge in the pandemic this kind of blasé attitude towards money and towards people and life and death, as we saw during the pandemic, just, I think, speaks to wider problems of British social privilege and the establishments that currently rule all our lives. And one of the strange things that you identify in this book is that in the name of meritocracy... The aristocracy, people born of wealth and privilege, have somehow reasserted themselves. They've claimed to be anti-elitist and have spoken to those who resent the elite whilst themselves being 
of the elite. Yeah, it's one of the strangest phenomena in recent British politics, the fact that the likes of Nigel Farage, who went to Dulwich School, you know, it's not one of the elite three schools that we spoke about, but it's still cream of the crop, so to speak, in terms of private schools in this country. You know, he was a city trader or a commodities trader, I think. Um, you know, he's been the leader of left behind Britain. It's farcical. Boris Johnson, an old Etonian um, former Bullingdon Club member, has been alongside him as this populist vanguard. And I think it speaks to a weakness of those from different political persuasions who haven't managed to counter Farage and Johnson. But it also shows how they are immensely self-serving, for one, and how they are willing to charm and adapt their political approach very expediently to get to the top. We've seen this multiple times during Boris Johnson's career, but we in particular saw it during his days at Oxford University, where he was going for the coveted Oxford Union presidency, the Oxford Union being the debating society where it's a sort of gravy train from the Oxford Union to the cabinet. And Boris pretended to be a social democrat in order to win election at the second time of asking to the Oxford Union presidency. And of course, he wrote two letters, one in favour of Remain, one in favour of Leave, before he stumped for the Leave campaign because it would benefit his political career, which it has. And it's that kind of slipperiness, that sort of willingness to do whatever and a lack of solid ideological base, which has, yeah. you know, brought these people, unfortunately, immense political success. Yeah, I completely agree. And the thing that I saw, I suppose, all those years ago, two things. One, a complete disregard for rules and regulations, as though those were really only there for plebs and oiks. Famously, George Osborne was called an oik because he hadn't gone to Eton or Harrow. And there's no real political philosophy. There's no real transformative political innovation. The Bullingdon politicians, they've left nothing other than the money that they've made for themselves and for their cronies. It's the politics of reaction. They're good at running slogans that are complete lies. They lie with impunity. And I suppose I saw that in this strange kind of student environment where they really genuinely believed that they were untouchable. And if you look at how Johnson is at the moment, they also always play themselves when they get found out as victims. It's just like Trump. You know, he wants to get arrested so he can play the victim. Johnson, you can see he's playing exactly the same game at the moment. These kangaroo courts, I'm a legend, I'm greater than all this. It's really terrifying. These people have inflicted huge damage on the political life of both the UK and I think Trump is in the same camp in the US. Yeah, extraordinary. Something that I was struck by was what Dominic Cummings said about Johnson. Obviously, Cummings not the most trustworthy, but he's seen Johnson at very close quarters, saying that all that Johnson wants to do is build monuments to himself in Augustine fashion. That's peppered throughout Johnson's career. Leveling up was a monument to his own political glory. The Garden Bridge in London, his balmy idea to build a huge overpass over the Irish Sea. I read a story from an architect, actually, who worked with Johnson while he was in City Hall, who said that he wanted to flank the new London Bridge station with gargoyles and didn't see why we couldn't build it in Renaissance fashion, because everything is performative and fundamentally he doesn't want to change lives or improve the health of the nation. He wants to 
construct his own legacy and for the world to see that even in terms of how they experience their daily lives walking through a very ordinary train station in central London. John, you can see this in a sense as an outsider then having grown up in New Zealand. And one thing strikes me reading Sam's book is whether you look at Johnson, whether you look at Cameron and Osborne, it's not only about their electoral success with the British people, it's their success within their own party. And that sense that we as a nation bend the knee, there is kind of deference is is marbled through British or at the very least English culture. We doff our caps to these people. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about Johnson is he's got quite an odd background. You know, he's not a sort of son of a city magnate. He's not a member of the aristocracy. He's a performer. And where you need to look really is the institutions, the education systems that produce people with that degree of entitlement, that degree of self-belief. There are famous letters about him from his master's Eden. He's been sacked by you know very reputable newspapers. He was a liar from day one. He continues to tell lies. The culture of deference, I think, is an important part. You know, I've seen Boris mess his hair up before he goes and gives a speech. He created a persona that was about laughing at himself and laughing at everything that was happening around him. And a lot of people who might not have seen themselves as died in the wall Tories thought, yeah, he's kind of our kind of guy. He's a real bloke. But he's quite depressive, really not a particularly happy person at all, Boris. He's so driven and so, I think, probably ruined by his complicated relationship. So when that cultural deference meets somebody who has no sense of shame and who has that degree of ego, it's playing out again with the Trump show in America. You know, one would hope with Johnson in the UK that we've kind of seen through him now and we can move on and at least try and rebuild some of the damage that's been done. But who knows? As you say, the ongoing success and popularity of these politicians like Johnson and Farage doesn't reflect well on us. Yeah, there is this sort of social class deference towards the higher classes, or, or particularly their mannerisms. Even if we don't realise it overtly, the mannerisms, the sort of uh, Downton Abbey lifestyle, the castles, the country houses, <laughs> etc. You know, it's sort of ingrained in us. But then I think that Johnson has benefited from that in one regard, but he's also benefited from a deep anti-deference, an anger towards the political establishment, and his sense that he's an outsider, a rogue, He's willing to say what nobody else is willing to say, which in many regards is his major political downfalls. We all remember during the 2019 election, he hid in a fridge for most of the time because his aides were so terrified about putting him (laughs) him on TV. But he did come across, I think, to the red wall as someone who wasn't sort of caught up with this sense of deference towards our establishment. He was above it, or at least he was different in some ways. He was erratic in a way that they liked. And he was sort of sent as a wrecking ball down to Westminster. And then Partygate just showed that he was one of the same. He was cut from the same cloth as everybody else. And I think as a result, that's why we've seen the country now wash its hands of it. One incredible statistic to emerge from the book, Sam, I hadn't realised this until I read it, that more than a third of all UK prime ministers have been to Eton. 
35% of all UK prime ministers. I mean, that's, a, that's a truly stunning statistics. And you talk about economics and the way in which oligarchs, whether Russian oligarchs previously, Saudi oligarchs now, whether that's simply down to the embrace of money by money. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting dynamic that we've seen play out in modern British society. I think what has basically happened is that during the 80s and 90s, we saw the decline both politically and to some extent socially and economically of the old aristocracy of old money, sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg class, if you like. Um, And Richard Bid puts it very well in his book, Sad Little Men, talking about these quaint private schools in Middle England and how they were all on the decline. I think famously David Cameron's prep school shut down not long after he went there. And then what it appears like anyway, observing the evidence, is that this caused a degree of panic on behalf of the moneyed elite who saw the influx of wealth from the East and particularly as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union and attached itself to new money, which it has welcomed into this country in its droves. And you see this across the political and economic establishment. So political parties accepting, well, I say political parties, the governing political party, the Conservative Party, accepting millions of pounds from oligarchs from the East, from Russian donors, which we've covered extensively over the past couple of years, but also private schools. You'll see the sons and daughters of oligarchs now essentially propping up these institutions that are so wildly expensive, costing 40, 50,000 pounds a year per person, that it's simply beyond the realms of possibility for a, a middle class person to send their kids to these schools. So essentially, they've become finishing schools or, you know, places of training for the oligarchs of the world. We've realized it probably for one of the first times during the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but no one's really done a lot about it policy-wise. I've been reading Oli Buller's book, Butler to the World. It is shocking how much this country has become a kind of money laundering outfit from kleptocrats and tycoons and tax dodgers. The mindset, the psychology that enables people to be able to live with that not even live with but actually celebrate that degree of inequality you know pretty much every sane political economist will tell you that the degrees of inequality we have are going to drive problems with providing proper care and health provision going to make a country less economically successful and yet that's the path we have under this particular odd strand you're right to say that the third of the Prime Minister come from Eton. It is a ridiculous idea that that's the case. But this particular Bullingdon strain, there's none of the positive, if you want to call them positive, transformational visions of previous governments, even like Thatcher. No, this, just, this has just been, as I think Sam's book shows brilliantly, they have just sold off the family silver and then some and made personal money without any sense of shame. A lot of this does, I'm afraid, go back to Russia, a failed state, which for some reason we have decided or Johnson's decided is kind of more or less okay, despite all this posturing over Ukraine. Some people listening to this might think, okay, we've gone through years of austerity, we've had the EU referendum, we've now had 
Brexit, all of these things were, to some level at least, voted for by the British public. Aren't you putting too much weight on the membership by a couple of prime ministers and one chancellor of the Exchequer of one club in one university for a short period of their lives at Oxford? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a fair point. I'd say that to show the scale of this, you just need to look at Liz Truss, really, you know, a comprehensively schooled, um, now former prime minister, who has been sucked in by the Bullingdon Club ethos, despite coming from a completely different world. Liz Truss's cabinet was more socially exclusive in terms of private school membership than even Rishi Sunak's, for example, the richest prime minister ever, or the old Etonian former Bullingdon Club member Boris Johnson's. Some 70% of her cabinet went to private school. So I think the point is that, yes, this phenomenon is epitomised by a few people, but the kind of philosophies and the ideologies that they've perpetuated have actually seeped into the very fabric of our institutions, mainly the Conservative Party, but also the way in which Westminster operates with its obsession for outside employment, Mm. uh, 17 million quid earned by MPs during a period of three years, the way in which our regulations work and our so-called independent bodies function in this country, the fact that they are stocked full of mates of the regime that act as a rubber stamping exercise for the abuses of power of those in cabinet. And I think once you think of both Truss and, of course, their allies in Tufton Street, which very much have formulated the intellectual basis of the Bullenden Club elite, you know, you, you start to see that this is a systemic problem that's woven into the very fabric of British democracy and not, unfortunately, just a few isolated cases of, of fools and oafs like Johnson and Cameron. Sam, thanks very much indeed for your time. That's Sam Bright, the author of Bullingdon Club Britain, which can be pre-ordered now from Byline Books. Thanks also to former Bullingdon Club member John Mitchinson. Don't pass the port, John. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast produced by me and by Harvey White and funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please take out a subscription if you can, because you get a fantastic monthly newspaper and you help keep this podcast on the air. Get full details over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com we'll speak again very soon but for now thank you and goodbye cheers 